Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The received idea of Native American history has been that it essentially ended with the 1890 massacre at Wounded Knee. Not only did more than 150 Sioux die at the hands of the U.S. Cavalry, but Native civilization did as well, at least according to that theory. Growing up Ojibwe on a reservation in Minnesota, training as an anthropologist, researching Native life for his nonfiction and his novels, David Troyer began to uncover a different narrative. Not despite, but rather because of American Indians' intense struggles to preserve their tribes, their cultures, and their very existence, the true story, he says, has been one of unprecedented resourcefulness and reinvention. His book is The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. David Troyer is Ojibwe from the Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota. He's author of four previous novels, most recently Prudence, and two books of nonfiction. He also has written for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Esquire, Slate, and Washington Post, among others. He's winner of the Pushcart Prize and a Guggenheim Fellowship, among other honors. Has a Ph.D. in anthropology and teaches literature and creative writing at the University of Southern California. David Troyer, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. Your intro makes me sound so smart, um, so I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my research for it, I think you are smart. <laughs> so, uh, Let's and, hope so. Um, enjoyed enjoyed the book a lot. Um, and uh, just kind of a personal note, and maybe we can weave this in as we go along, uh, uh, American Indian identity and, and those who identify themselves. Um, my father always uh, believed uh, no no reason to doubt him that he was one quarter Ojibwe his father was oh. was half and uh, his his mother my grandmother uh, full full Ojibwe if you look at pictures of my grandmother his mother uh, she looks <laughs> Indian uh, as we go back in the genealogy it kind of uh, peters out so we can't can't totally prove it but uh, huh. maybe this is a good way in in here on on that personal note uh, D. Brown's book was required reading in our household, um, and so I, I definitely was influenced uh, by it. My father was influenced by his views of himself as, as American Indian. Uh, let's start start there. A Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, that has reference to the massacre, has reference to D. Brown's book, I believe, as well. It does, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, D. Brown's—oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, um, I guess you, you discovered this in college, or, or you read the book in college? Well, you know, when I was growing up, most Native households that I had ever visited had four books, roughly. All of them had the same four books. And one was Vine Deloria Jr.'s God is Red. One was the J.C. Penney's catalog. One was the Bible. And the other was Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And it was everywhere uh, growing up. And uh, it's no surprise that that book, published in 1970, has sold over, I think, 5 million copies. It's translated into 17 different languages. It's never been out of print. It's everywhere. But I didn't read it until college. And uh, when I was far from home, and I was out in college in New Jersey, and I missed my tribe, and I missed my family, and I reached for anything I could find in which my life, in the sense I made of it, was reflected. And so I picked it up, and I was conflicted, you know, when I, when I did. Because on one hand... Dee Brown devoted incredible energy and skill to, to amplifying uh, our history and reminding people of our history. But on the other hand, uh, I felt like he killed us all over again. Like in the very opening pages of the book, in the very first page, he says, you know, this is about the Plains Wars, and I deal mostly with the Plains tribes in the American West, and I start 
roughly in 1850, and I end in 1890, the massacre at Wounded Knee, where the culture and civilization of the American Indian was destroyed. And so I felt, like I said, I felt, I felt so um, uplifted that he would pay attention to us, and I felt so silenced when he rather prematurely announced our death. Hmm. In fact, I, I want to quote this. You, you put it so well. You say, it was though Brown made a grave for me, put me in it, and mourned my passing. You go on to say, I felt honored and gagged at the same time. That's exactly it. So, uh, and, and this became the received wisdom, right? And, and uh, you know, promulgated earlier, quite early on, Frederick Jackson Turner, for example, uh, mm-hmm. talk, talked about a, uh, I don't know if you used these exact words, but uh, an, an Indian past and an American future. Yeah, no, those were my words. Oh, those but, were uh, your words, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those ones are mine. Okay. Um, but yeah, so, so even around the time of the massacre itself in 1890, the, the received wisdom, the, the common fantasy was that America had an Indian past and an American future, and that the two were somehow incompatible, that Native people were necessarily and only of the past. And that America, geared toward progress as she was, might once in a while look back over her shoulder at what we had once been, but didn't really include us in its idea of what it was and where it was going. And that always seemed false to me. When I was so far from home in college and I was so homesick, I wasn't homesick for the past. I was homesick for my present tense. I was homesick for the continued complicated vitality of my tribe. But he goes on in that introduction, D. Brown does, at the very end of it, of his prologue, he says, if you, you know, speaking about his book and, and what he hopes to accomplish, he said, so if you ever happen to travel to a modern Indian reservation and see the poverty and the hopelessness and the squalor, perhaps by reading this book, you will understand why. And I, I remember being offended by that, too, because I don't love where I'm from, and I don't love my tribe, and I don't love who I am, because they all suck. <laughs> I mean, it's so simple on one hand that there are real things, not only worth noticing, but, but that capture my attention and my heart, and uh, they're not poverty, hopelessness, and squalor. And so this book is is meant to, to correct, it. one of the things this book tries to do is to correct that fantasy and, and recalibrate it. One of, a, a kind of a related strain of the received wisdom is, and you've talked about this, that Indian lives are lives apart, and you say that that's not true. Yeah, that's one of the other things that I'm, I'm dealing with. And I should say that this isn't, the book isn't pitched as, as merely a corrective to change the minds and educate non change the minds of and educate non-Indians. Um, I think in many ways, Native people too, and I struggled with this, we also avail ourselves of the tragic narrative that we were once great people but are great no more. So it's, this isn't simply for outsiders, this is for us too. Um, and one of the things that I, that I think many of us think and feel is that American Indian communities and by extension American Indian people are in America but not of America. 
And I just feel like that's also untrue. I mean, think about it this way. America's first act as a country, its first revolutionary act, was, as we all remember, to dump tea in Boston Harbor. But they didn't merely or only dump tea in the harbor. First, they dressed up as Mohawk Indians with gastoa, that's the Haudenosaunee word for a, a headdress, and gastoa and buckskins and face paint, and then they dumped tea in the harbor. So from the very beginning, we were involved in America's idea of itself and as being distinct from and separate from Europe. This went on, and this, this connection between American history and American Indian people started then and, and has continued on and on a number of different registers. I mean, for instance, in the 1970s and 80s and the early part of the 90s, the Supreme Court in post-Watergate America heard more cases about federal Indian law than any other genre of law, more than immigration, more than gun control, more than reproductive rights, more than women's rights, more than any other kind of law the court considered the dimensions of tribal sovereignty and how it related to state power and how state power related to the federal government. And so America doesn't come into focus unless you consider American Indian history in relation to American history. So I don't think you can know this country without knowing us. Uh, you said, I'll quote you again here, you say, I uh, cannot shake the belief that the ways in which we tell the story of our reality shapes that reality. Of course, that's for anyone, right, Not including American Indians and, and anyone. Uh, and you've also said that for this book, you wanted to talk to people, not experts. So you're, you weren't going right. to interview Russell Means, you were going to interview, you know, your friend, uh, your friends and, uh, and others. Yeah, so yeah, those are two separate thoughts, at least in my mind, but... Um... So, for one thing, I mean, the book was to take the second thought first. I didn't want to write the same old story about Indian death. This is not a book about that. This is not a book about Indian death. This is a book about Indian life. And as such, I knew I had to talk to people and catch them in the act of living. And so it's so funny that so often when I'm interviewed about my work, and particularly about this book, people say, so what is the story of the American Indian? And I say, well, one of the points of the book is that there is no story. There are only stories. There is no Native American life. There are only Native American lives. There were hundreds of tribes and hundreds of different tribal languages and customs and cultures before Europeans ever set foot here, and hundreds of different tribes, 320 federally recognized tribes, roughly, still exist, with dozens of different languages and customs and experiences. There's been diversity since we first arrived here, and diversity remains, so that there is no American Indian life, just lives. But in order to talk about those, I had to talk to real people, and I had to catch them in the act of living. So that was, that was really important to me to do. Uh, yeah, maybe you could uh, treat the first part of my uh my my <laughs> awkwardly <laughs> constructed <me> <laughs> uh, two-part two uh, <laughs> uh, question there uh, about how uh, the way we tell our stories affects the reality. Affects right, the reality. yeah. I'm guilty as charged. I, I can't help it. I am a leather elbow patch tweed jacket wearing professor 
of literature and creative writing. As such, I can't help but believe that how we tell stories shapes what can be told and shapes what can be imagined. And that not only that, but it, they, they shape our very reality. The stories that we tell and how we tell them, not just the, their content, but their shape, affects how we see everything. This is true, as you mentioned, this is true not just for Native people. This is true of the stories we tell about what America's greatest problems are right now. This, this shapes our, our incredibly divisive electoral politics right now. This shapes so many different things. And so for me and for this book, it wasn't enough to simply include different names and dates and events that that people may have overlooked. I needed to write an entirely different kind of story in order for people to change what they see and how they see it in order to change our possible future. That was really key. There's, I don't know if we have time, but there's this great anecdote that proves this. There's this anthropologist who traveled to South America he was studying tribes down there, and the tribes down there had this amazing way of meeting with one another and resolving disputes, where the headmen from each of these tribes that were separated by great distances would all, at the same prearranged time, take the same hallucinogenic drug, travel outside of their bodies, meet in committee, travel back inside their bodies when the drug wore off, and tell their people what was decided. And the anthropologist thought to himself, well, this can't be true. That can't work. But as a scientist, I should figure it out, so I'll take the drug and see if I show up there, too. So he takes the drug, and he describes seeing this swirl of colors, this, this vibrant kaleidoscope of spinning shapes and colors. And out of the shapes and colors, a face emerges, and it's the face of Claude Lévi-Strauss, the father of anthropology. And, and so he says, see, it doesn't work. And my takeaway is, no, it totally works. You see what you're trained to see. These headmen are trained to see each other, and so they do. You're trained to see a French uh, structural anthropologist because that's what you believe in. So <laughs> narrative is like that, yeah, I think. Yeah, I wanted to follow up, go to break here soon, but I wanted to follow up uh, with something you said, very important, um, that we tend to, uh, the larger culture, uh, it struck me as true when you said it, uh, tends to see or want to see uh, American Indians as... A monolith, right? It's it's one culture. It's 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 one one thing. It's almost like all American Indians meet somewhere on Thursdays, you know, kind of a thing. Um, <laughs> if only we did. If, if only you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could expand on that. There's there's something there. I guess that maybe that says more about the the culture as a whole. What our need, what 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 why we need to to lump all Native Americans in. In, uh, uh, that's that's a tough one, um, and I have theories. It's not really explored in the book so much as to why people persist in in the thinking of you know Native Americans are X or Y when we're all so very different and come in all different shapes and colors and sizes and whatever. Um, but part of it, I think, is is that unlike other say ethnic minorities in the American imagination, American Indians are gone. But what lives on are some sort of 
a limited set of extractable and permanent ideals and ideas. So we may be gone, but the Native American spirit, quote unquote, you know, oneness with nature, uh, non-hierarchical societies, um, you know, take your take your pick from from the you know pick whatever stereotype you want from the bouquet of stereotypes that are associated with us, but that that people sort of think of these as as essences as opposed to lived lived qualities, and these were evoked during the countercultural movement with you know hippies in the 1960s and 1970s with environmentalist movements, and so that only works if you treat us as a monolith. It doesn't work if you remember the words of, say, one of our Ojibwe chiefs when negotiating with the government, and he was demanding that they do something to a different neighboring tribe. And they said, well, why do you have a right to do that? He says, excuse me? What's my right? He says, by right of conquest. We conquer these people. Their land is now ours, and we get to determine their future. That doesn't sound holistic to me, but that was an Ojibwe chief speaking in the 19th century. So it doesn't work. Yeah. When you start noticing differences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it falls apart, yeah. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, David Troyer, his latest book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. This is Professor Beth Fouth for Bringing More to Life. What is empathy? It includes taking your aging parent's perspective and recognizing your parent's view as their truth, staying out of judgment, recognizing emotions and communicating that understanding to them. It is feeling with another person. It's being vulnerable to that same hurt or loneliness or loss they are expressing. Being empathetic takes time and effort. In our busy days, as we balance our needs with the needs of our parents, it can be lost. Sharing feelings can bring more to their life in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with uh, author David Troyer. Uh, his uh, latest book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. And uh, David Troyer uh, says that uh, not despite, but rather because of American Indians' intense struggles to preserve their tribes, their cultures, and their very existence, the true story of American Indians has been one of unprecedented resourcefulness and uh, reinvention. Uh, so let's get into some of the history here. And uh, one of the examples of, uh, of that thesis is... Um, Indian children forced into boarding schools. Um, so I wonder if you talk a bit about that. I, I think the, uh, I don't think it was a subtext. It was the actual announced um, intention that uh, we, we needed to break down the tribes, break down the families, re-educate um, Indian uh, children um, so they become, quote-unquote, real Americans. That's right. I mean, there were some pretty, well, let's just say stupid ideas about of what civilization was and what it meant. And the two main ideas were you can't become civilized until you own property. Owning property is the path to citizenship. It's, it's, or 
or to civilization, owning property is kind of a gateway drug to the Western mind, I think. So this resulted in a federal Indian policy determined to break up tribal land holdings, allot parcels to individuals. And then, oh, look, there are millions of surplus acres that we can't assign to Indians because there are too few, so we'll just take it. And so, uh, you know, on one side of that coin of good intention was greed. The other way in which the government tried to solve what it thought of as the Indian problem, and I should say that the federal government has always has always pulled out their hair trying to solve the Indian problem, and there isn't really an Indian problem. There's just an American government problem. But nonetheless, the other thing the government thought to do was, well, what's really holding tribes back from getting with the program and joining the mainstream and becoming American, because let's face it, in that day and age, and we hear this still today, you know, we think of this this idea of being or becoming American as, as <laughs> the, like the most amazing thing a person could do. And what kind of person wouldn't want that? Nonetheless, to, to solve that problem, to make American Indians just Americans, to get out of the Indian business and to relieve themselves of their obligation the government decided to try and destroy tribes by destroying families. And so thousands upon thousands of American Indian children, including my grandmother, I might add, were either forcibly removed or coerced from their homes in the late 19th century through the early part of the 20th century, sent to boarding schools hundreds of miles away, not allowed to go home, not allowed to speak their native languages. My grandmother went to school speaking only Ojibwe, and she came home speaking only English six years later. Um, not allowed to practice their religions, not allowed to to do anything that had to do with their culture, were taught English, were forcibly Christianized, and this was thought of as a solution. That program um, and the kinds of abuses that Native students suffered there, psychological, physical, and sexual. There was a, a boarding school in the Southwest where misbehaving Indians, misbehaving children who spoke their tribal language were locked in a metal box in the yard of the school for days, like you see in, in movies with convicts, for example. Physical abuse. This had tremendously negative effects on Native people and Native families. So if you're ripped away from your family, like my grandmother was, her relationship with her own mother became complicated, and it was affected deeply by going to boarding school. Subsequently, my grandmother's relationship with my mother was also affected, and so on, because the way my mother parented me, not to say that she was a bad parent, she wasn't, but it certainly was affected by the boarding school experience of her mother. Nonetheless, so it was, it was awful in many ways. Nonetheless, you took all these Native kids from all these different tribes, tribes that were for centuries antagonistic toward one another, tribes that didn't even know of one another because they were so far apart. You shoved them all in school together, and these kids shared this experience. They, they suffered together. They learned together. They formed friendships. And when they graduated and went out into the world and oftentimes went back to their tribes and, and worked in tribal government, worked in tribal programs, they had a network of Indian people across the country that they never had before. Previously isolated and atomized tribes suddenly found themselves sharing experiences, sharing expertise, 
and sharing connection with tribes all over the place. And this was a huge benefit in the era of tribal self-determination in the 30s and 40s and, and, and into the 50s. So boarding schools were meant to destroy Indians, but they kind of made different, different ones with different skills, well-suited to um, strengthening tribal sovereignty and tribal communities, you know, well into the, in, up through and until today. Mm. I'd like to pause right here and, and talk a little bit about your background. You have a very interesting sure. background. Uh, so you made reference to your mother, and I'm reading uh, an interview with your publisher. I'll just quote you here. Um, you say, when my mother, against the odds, survived pancreatic cancer about five years ago, I realized I needed a new way of seeing her, and she needed a new way of seeing herself. What if you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that. my mom's cancer, and she's had two... two cycles of cancer. She had lung cancer about 15 years ago and survived. And then about now it's about seven, six, seven years ago, she got a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and she's survived that too. And, and my mom is brilliant and tough and an, an amazing woman. But I couldn't help but feel that when she survived both of those cancers, I initially felt that she'd won the lottery. She'd beaten the two most aggressive and, and awful and most often terminal cancers there are. And so I thought, you've won the lottery. Not only that, you've won it twice. But she felt, I think, that she had touched death, and that's what and that's what she took away from it. She, she learned lessons in her own mortality, I think, because of her, her illnesses. And I, this was really in my mind when I'm writing the book, because this is in microcosm, kind of what I'm talking about, you know, for the whole project, which is we could just fall into this narrative of this tragic narrative of pain and suffering and diminishment. And, my mom experienced pain, and she did suffer, and her life was in many ways diminished. But a, a more complicated picture would be to recognize how hard those diseases hit her and hit our family, but to note also the ways in which our family worked together and helped each other and helped her, uh, and to recognize the most basic fact of all this, that she is still alive. Mm. And so I found in that struggle to shift the, our family narrative and in and, and my struggle to, to remember and to think about my mother's strengths as opposed to her frailty is just in microcosm what the whole book is kind of about. Uh, yeah, it certainly is. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about your father. Uh, he, I think he passed in the, the past uh, several years. Uh, a Holocaust survivor, yeah. right? It's his birthday today. It, birthday today. Oh, oh, happy birthday today. today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He would be 92, and he died in 2016, just a couple weeks short of his of his uh, 90th birthday. Oh. And um, he was an amazing man. He uh, is a Jewish Holocaust survivor. He fled Austria in 1938. Parts of his flight were accomplished with his parents. Parts, he was all by himself. Made it to the States 
And within four years, made it to the States in 1940. When he turned 17, he enlisted, and the U.S. The U.S. Army, in its brilliance, took this fluent German and English speaker, because his English by then was perfect, and just, instead of sending him to Europe, where German might be of some use, pulled him from his regular unit, taught him Japanese, and sent him to the Pacific, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is hilarious when you think about it. But, and he went on to do really lots of amazing things, one of which was to meet and marry my mother, and raise us on the reservation. And uh, he's really, he was also a big part of me when I was writing this book, because I started the writing of this book in January of 2016, in the week after his death. That's when the, I started putting words to paper for this book. And he was, he had every reason to be cynical. He lost everything. Almost everyone he loved had been murdered by the Germans. He lost his language and his country. He lost his family. He lost everything. And yet he was one of the least cynical people I have ever known. I asked him once, shortly before he died, I said, how can you stand it? Something had happened in the news. I don't remember what it was. I said, how can you stand it? You know what this country does what it often does. And he looked at me, he said, well, of course it does awful things, but this country saved my life. I'd be dead if I hadn't found refuge here. And so this country saved my life. And since it saved my life, it's my job to try and make her better and to prevent her from doing the worst that she can imagine. And that thought sort of was really central to me when I was writing this book. And there's so many of the Native people I talked to in this book, or even my mother's father, my grandfather, who I didn't get a chance to talk to for this book. He died some years ago. He was proudly Indian. He was a proudly Native man. And he also enlisted and volunteered to fight in the Second World War and fought in Normandy in the battle of, and also in, the, in Belgium, the Battle of the Bulge. And he fought as an Indian, but he also fought as an American, as a patriot who loved this country. America just happens to be the country that surrounds and sits on top of our pre-existing Native homelands. And people like my grandfather fought to preserve both the country around us and that is part of us, and also our tribes, which are around us and part of us. I'm curious. Um, I want to talk about that. I want to go to, uh, uh, there, there's a high number of uh, Native American veterans, right? But before I go there, um, I want to follow up on your father. So he's, uh, very interesting story. He's a, uh, is he viewed as an outsider? Was he viewed as an outsider in this, on the reservation there? Was he, did he come to be accepted? What, and what was his view? of, uh, of well, his, his identity? Um, well, he's, he saw himself as, a, I guess, a, a Jewish-American guy, but he wanted to be Indian. And it, I think in his later years, that caused him a little bit of pain as much as he was beloved by many people in the community. He, um, 
it doesn't work that way. You can't become Native any more than you can become Asian or become African-American. It just doesn't quite work that way. So that was a tension in my father. Um, and my father had a, he was a small man. He was about five, six, really strongly built, really athletic, vigorous guy who I actually had trouble outworking until he was into his 70s. And then I could finally outpace him and outlast him when we were doing chores. But before then, not so much. So he was a small guy, but he had a very big personality. And uh, of course, in a small community, like on the reservation, some people were annoyed by him. They, they just drove them nuts because he just wouldn't stop. Whatever he was into, whatever he wanted to accomplish, he just kept going and going and going and going. He wouldn't take no for an answer. He wouldn't give up. But then that same quality endeared him to many, many people. I went on a date once, and I picked up my date. It was a woman from back home from Leech Lake. I picked her up, and we're, we're going out to do whatever. This is some years ago. And she said, oh, by the way, my aunt says to say hi to your dad. I said, your aunt knows my dad? She goes, yeah, she loves him. So how does she know him? She said, when my aunt was a little girl, and nobody cared about her, and no one cared about the other kids in the community, your dad would come down to the village every Saturday afternoon and pick up all the Indian kids hanging around the store and drive them the 15 miles into Bemidji, which is the bigger town nearby, and tell him he'd pick them up in five hours, and then he'd go and do whatever he was doing and come and drive them all back home again. She says, my aunt said that he was the only white guy who ever even thought of our boredom or our desire to go into the big town of Bemidji or to be entertained because our, you know, their parents didn't think it was their job to entertain them, and they didn't have a cars to bring them to town or the time or the money for gas or anything like that. But my dad would just, you know, well, these kids need something to do. I better go pick them up and bring them into Bemidji. And so he would go do that. So in ways large and small, he had a profound effect on my community, and he was much beloved by many people. And, uh, and he said that the reservation was a place that he wanted to devote his life to because he'd been kicked around and kicked out of, of every place he'd been to before, treated as an outsider and, and made to flee and treated as an immigrant and made to feel bad about it. He was always this weird, strange outsider until he got to the reservation where he said he felt he finally felt at home. He finally felt he'd found a place that understood him and that he understood and where he could make a difference and where he belonged. That's how he felt. And uh, I, think he, I think he had the right of it. Uh, maybe this would be a good place to, to bring in uh, this, this topic. Uh, identity in uh, Indian identity, uh, there have been, so speaking of people outside uh, who, who aren't uh, Indian, there have been times, it kind of comes around where, uh, you know, a significant pe- number of people maybe want to become Indian or want to adopt uh, what they see as Indian culture or Indian religion. Um, and then uh, somewhat related, maybe how Indians see themselves. Um, so that could be, you write genetically, politically, culturally, but, a, but a, a key, I guess the legal definition has been, politically, political definition has been a blood quantum, right? Right, right. So people always wonder, well, who gets to be Indian? I say, well, do you mean officially or emotionally? <laughs> and officially, there is 
the the way in which the government and tribes define who and who is and who is not officially, that is to say legally, American Indian is based solely on blood quantum or descent from treaty rules. So if a bunch of Native people were marked down on a treaty in the 19th century, if you're a descendant of one of those people that are on those rolls, then you can belong to the tribe. This is how the Cherokee Nation does their enrollment. But there is no enrollment criteria that does not include uh, blood quantum or descent. And this is pretty divisive. And I should say, so just so people understand, being enrolled has zero to do with whether you are culturally native. You could have zero connection. You could have never, never even been to your reservation, know nothing about it, be totally devout Christian, accountant, native guy who's never been to his reservation, doesn't even have any family living there anymore that, that he would recognize or remember, and be legally native. Whereas you can be a full-blooded um, person who's lived on your reservation your entire life, your, your entire world in terms of kinship and belief and geography and all of that can be native, but through some accident of history or some stroke of the pen, you're not enrolled in the tribe and you're not legally native. So whether you're enrolled or not has nothing to do with, with whether, you, whether you're culturally native and doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, with how you identify yourself. So. But I, I think some, I don't know if you're, well, I, I want to ask you first, um, this would be the good time to bring this in, uh, Senator Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren and her, <laughs> yeah. and her, uh, you know, uh, her, blo- her blood test, that, that became controversial. I think she was just trying to put to rest a claim that she had made, I guess, uh, passed down in her family. And uh, I guess her purpose was, let's prove it once and for all. Yeah, well, that whole thing is... Has, I mean, it's, it's bait that, we, that many of us continue to gobble up, regardless of the hook underneath it. The only reason any of this is an issue is because the guy she was running against in Massachusetts, Massachusetts when she was running for her seat in Congress, brought up some stupid Native stuff, and then Trump has been amplifying that. And they've all been bringing it up because they don't want to confront her economic policies. The, the interesting thing about Senator Warren are her economic policies. That's what's interesting. That she grew up in Oklahoma and grew up hearing stories that she had Native heritage is all that does is prove that she's an Oklahoman. Because so, there are so many Native people in Oklahoma and there are so many people in Oklahoma who grew up hearing that they're, they have Native ancestry. That just makes her Oklahoman. And so what? And just to quiet the, the idiocy of Trump, which is often hard to quiet, she says, fine, I'll take a, I'll take a DNA test. And the DNA test actually proves that the stories that she heard were right, that she is it you know at some far remove got native american 
ancestry. And, you know, we should note that she didn't say, I'm, I want to be or I should be a citizen of this or that uh, native nation. She didn't say, this is my culture. She didn't even say, this is my identity. She just said, this is something I grew up hearing about myself. And it turns out that it's true. There's no story there. It is so boring. It is so uninteresting. <laughs> and it's all a distraction hmm. because yeah. Trump is deeply threatened. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, granted all of that, but, but uh, some of the... Uh, some of the disquiet that I w- that I was hearing, at least from some circles, from some Native American circles, at least, or people maybe called called allies of Native Americans, were saying, "Well, we shouldn't we shouldn't look to uh, to blood." I've got some concerns about uh, co opting uh, culture. Not that Senator Warren was trying to do that, but well, there was a lot that? of pushback from Native tribes, and they, I just wish they hadn't used Warren as a way to have this discussion, although the discussion itself is really important. They were pointing out that belonging in tribes, that the DNA test is nowhere used. No one uses DNA tests to determine tribal enrollment. We use genealogy, rightly or wrongly, not without problems, but they're saying DNA doesn't make you native. That's not to say that Blood quantum doesn't, at least illegally, but these were distinctions that that I think Native people were trying to make um, by way of Warren, and I was a little disappointed. I'm like, enough already, just enough. Be strategic. (laughs) Support her, because she supports poor people. Most Natives are poor. Let it go. (laughs) So this goes to show, too, something I try to point out in the book, which is that there's so much diversity in experience and in culture and in thought and in politics in Indian country. And I think more often than not, we have a a kind of healthy diversity and, and we have healthy disagreements. And those disagreements are unlike our on the national stage these days, serve to make Indian communities stronger. We have this way, one of, the, our, one of our strategies for survival all these years was a kind of contentious acceptance. We had this, this habit of contentious acceptance where you can do the most awful things and say the most awful things and, and screw everything up, and people still welcomed you home, just sort of broadly speaking. And... We understood all these years that if we alienated one another too much, there wouldn't be a tribe left. And that's something I think the government, or that the American society these days might benefit from thinking about. Yeah, certainly, yeah. <laughs> it's a lesson, or it's a, it's a dream devoutly to be wished, anyway. Uh, let's, take, yeah. let's take another break, then we'll come back. We have a, an email from Steve. And you can email us as well with your question or comment. We have about 10 minutes left in this discussion with David Troyer. The book is The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. The email uh, you can reach us at is upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following this break.
I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we launch a special series about a special industry. That's roughly the same size as the cardboard box industry. But the cardboard box industry doesn't have what this one has. This one has winning, losing, cheating, stealing, Things hang in the balance. It's something you can touch in all different areas of your life. The hidden side of sports. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest, is the author David Troyer. The book is The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. Uh, by the way, you can find David Troyer at davidtroyer.net and uh, on Twitter at David Troyer. David Troyer, notice on the Twitter feed, uh, you, this will be of interest to people in Utah, you are retweeting an announcement from uh, Representative Gallego from Arizona, I believe, um, also, Representative Helen from uh, New Mexico and 71 other representatives have uh, reintroduced uh, Bears Ears Act to, uh, or the Bears Act to expand Bears Ears National Monument back to the full yes. 1.9 million acre tribal proposal. Uh, well, yes. And so already, and I think that's being spearheaded by Deb Helen um, um, from the Southwest and Recently, two American Indian women were elected to Congress, Deb Haaland and Sharice Davids, and they're already having a profound impact, and I'm glad they're there. Uh, so let's go to uh, an email from Steve. Uh, Steve says, my answer to books on tape is college course material on CD, which I listened to in the car. Most recently, I quote-unquote audited UNC professor Daniel Cobb's Great Courses lecture series titled Native Peoples of North America, which covers some of the same territories your discussion this morning. Though Professor Cobb, in my humble opinion, lacks the sense of humor your guest brings to it. Cobb's underlying thesis is that when European culture met North American culture, uh, parenthetically, please forgive my describing it monolithically, which Cobb does not, uh, in parentheses, that a synthesis emerged. Though Cobb means to tell an uplifting story, from my 21st century vantage, knowing the ineluctable march set in motion by the diseases Europeans brought with them, I felt rather discouraged that Native American peoples and cultures really ever had a fighting chance. That's not what Cobb wants his listeners to take away, and it's heartening to hear another hopeful chapter this morning. That's uh, Steve. Steve, thank, thank that, that's Steve. a really thorough and amazing comment and less a question, but, but thank you so much for that, and uh, thanks for the praise. But I've got a book for you. Um, there is this idea that Native people, when they met Europeans, kind of no harm, no foul, Europeans brought diseases for which American Indians didn't have immunities, and kind of too bad, so sad, but disease did most of the dirty work. But there's a new book called The Other Slavery by Andres Resendez, and in it he talks about the fact that the slavery of American Indians started earlier than African slavery and lasted longer, well until the 20th century in some parts of North America. And, and it still persists today under different, uh, different names in places like Mexico and so on. But nonetheless, his point is that 
and he does great research to, to point out diseases did take a toll on native populations. There's no doubt about it. But those populations would undoubtedly have rebounded, just as European populations rebounded after the, the bubonic plague, among others, within a generation or two. And he points out many instances of communities rebounding from smallpox and things like that. The thing that made it impossible for us to rebound it was because we were enslaved in the tens of thousands, crammed together, malnourished, overworked, and that's where the diseases took hold. So without slavery, the effect of disease would have been significant to some degree, but not determinative the way it was in, in so many cases. Slavery is the culprit in, in, his, in his estimation, but you should read it. It's called The Other Slavery. It's amazing. The Other Slavery. Okay, I will recommend that. Uh, just have about uh, uh, four or five minutes left. I, I definitely want to treat uh, the, the, this part of your book. You talk about, um, I think the popular conception is um, Indians are all on the reservation, um, and, and we don't perhaps think about um, the fact that by 1970, half of Indians lived in urban areas. And that, that can, I, I don't know if that uh, statistic continues, but many Indians do live in urban areas. There is a migration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the popular assumption is that Native people live on reservations on these little islands of suffering in the American Sea. And, well, one, reservations aren't necessarily islands of suffering. And two, many Natives don't live on reservations at all and, and haven't for generations. And that's the result of two things. On one hand, American Indians like African Americans underwent a, you know, a voluntary Great Migration. Just as African Americans were moving from the rural South to the industrialized North by the millions in the first half of the 20th century, so were we. Not in quite as great a numbers because there were fewer of us, but as a result of coming into contact with and, and learning from and sort of getting involved with non-Native people and, and the modern world as soldiers in World War One and World War Two, et cetera, et cetera, because of boarding schools and all that other stuff, Native people were moving around. So you need to understand American Indian history in relation to African-American history, and you need to understand American history in relation to those two things to understand that we were always moving around. And there was a government uh, program called Relocation, which again tried to mainstream us by moving us from reservations to cities in the 1950s. Some tens of thousands of Indians moved as part of this government program, too, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, so that by the 1970s, uh, there were Native people all over the place, not just in big urban areas, but in ex-urban areas, in suburbs, in small towns, in villages, all over the place. And, um, but we're not, people can't imagine that we're, we're living lives there, but, you know, but here I am living in, in the bucolic village of Claremont in California right now. So there you go. Indians everywhere. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, just have uh, about uh, a minute left. Uh, I want to just uh, do this in passing, then have you uh, wrap up, uh, David Troyer. Uh, we, I made reference to this earlier, and you write this in the book. Uh, by 1944, more than a third of Native adult male population had served in World War II, and that's another thing that doesn't fit the, the stereotype. You mentioned your grandfather served. Uh, I just want to, maybe with the minute we have left, um, 
What's the takeaway you hope people uh, get from the heartbeat of, of, of Wounded Knee? What do you hope they most take away here? Well, there are a billion takeaways, but <laughs> there are many, many things that I hope people notice in the book. But, but one of the principal things is that we're not dead. We're not gone. Wounded Knee and the close of the frontier wasn't the end of Indian life. It was the start of a new chapter. It was the, the beginning of a whole new set of strategies and, and reactions and, and interactions with America. And that in that process, and before then too, but in that process, not only were American Indians shaped by America, but we in turn shaped the country. And that we're not just victims of history, but that we are historical actors in our own right, making history not always with tools of our making, but making it nonetheless. That's what I hope people get from the book. And I hope, you know, that they enjoy reading the book. That's that's kind of important. Yeah, that, that is important. It's an enjoyable read. And some very interesting people uh, to meet here as well. The Heartbeat of Wounded oh. Knee, Native America from 1890 to present. David Troyer, the author, has joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. Okay, you too. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.